The motivation for this, where this comes for me, is you know, groups always 50 people plus their uh, wives, husbands, kids, friends. You know, people give us money, the investors. They, you know, we've made a promise to a lot of people that this is going to be okay. And so I know that I cannot, you know, predict the future. I cannot change things around me, but I am not going to be happy if I didn't give it everything I could. This is Rasto Ivanich, CEO of Group Solver. That's what the real challenge is of growing and scaling the business is that you do have that responsibility. This is your life. This is somebody else's life you are playing with. Today, Rasto and I are going to be discussing the growth stages of startups, looking at investment, team growth, and culture fit. Doing it too early before you have that fit is only going to mean that you're going to run out of money at some point because you have to have the economics. You have to understand how things are going to scale and how you're going to become profitable at some point. Doing it too late might mean somebody's passing you by. You're just going to be so certain you get it right, that you get the product market fit right, you get the pricing right, you get a product right, you get everything right. You wait so long and suddenly it becomes irrelevant. Whether it's seeking funding or scaling your operation, it's important to consider the factors of your business and whether you are looking to scale fast or sustainably. So getting it just right, I think that's the challenge. And I, I, that, that's how I will be judged as the CEO one day, is did I catch that moment? Did I catch the, the wind, you know, the right, right spot of the wave and, or not? And, and that's, I think that's what determines a successful company from not successful. This is Savvy with Sparring, where we talk to founders, investors, and people in the startup ecosystem about entrepreneurship and getting a business off the ground. I'm Annabelle Pemberton, Legal Mind at Sparring, and I'll be guiding you through how business and law mesh together. At some point after being gainfully employed for maybe five or six years, I realized that I wanted to do something where I'm in control. I realized that I wanted to be a CEO one day and the fastest path to being CEO is just make your own company and make your own decisions. I was actually talking to my brother one day about how difficult it is for humanity to solve tough problems like climate change and poverty. And so he and I started talking on the phone and about, well, all this new technology and big data and AI and natural language processing, we should be able to maybe build a technology that helps people agree with each other and build that consensus agreement. And intellectually, we got really interested in that. He's also an economist like myself. We were not programmers. We were not designers. We just had the problem we wanted to solve. And we just started building it little by little, prototype after prototype. We built it, broke it, tried to find somebody to take a look at it and give us feedback. And so it, it was very organic. It wasn't one of those things that we would go out, create a PowerPoint presentation, found investors, and boom, $5 million investment, and here we go. It was really slowly embarrassing. And So why was Group Solver able to expand to where it is today? It really just changed when we got our first grant money. We got a grant from the Gates Foundation. That was first validation for us as a concept that it might be worth something. And then later on, when we started using that grant money and started hiring first couple of coders, it started really feeling we have a business, a company. After getting grant money from the Gates Foundation, Group Solver then went through an incubator on a second attempt. Then we got into an incubator here in San Diego on our second attempt. The first time we were not successful. It was devastating when we didn't get in. 
the second time we got in and we were, you know, now we joined some startups in this co-working space. And of course, I thought everybody else around me was way far further ahead. I felt like an imposter for, for the very long, very long time. This process from idea to incubator was around two years, just to give you some time scale. I think being in the incubator and having this first grant money that kind of started, started to feel the journey is really beginning for real. It's not a hobby anymore. I mean, it's still a hobby because we still were not making money, but it felt it was going somewhere. And then the, and then the last part of the trifecta that made, made this feel like a real business is when we started getting first paying customers. In previous episodes, we have spoken about joining incubators, the process and what to get out of a program. However, what about the steps after? Group Solver actually had their first customer from their incubator. Because that, that felt like, okay, now we have a responsibility. Because somebody bought our product, we are responsible for this product actually to work. Give them some value for this. And, you know, that, that, those three things started making me feel we have a company to build. Once you take money and start working with your first clients, it is important to have documents in place to govern your arrangement with the client. Ensuring you have at minimum terms and conditions in place is crucial to avoid any issues if the corporation falters at a later stage. At that point, we were maybe three co-founders and, and one full-time coder when this happened. And we started slowly hiring a few more people, but it was just a, you know, a handful. You know, we didn't pay ourselves salaries. The, the founders, of course, we were preserving money for coding and for hiring somebody to help us with marketing. So it was, it was tiny. So at some point, and this is really funny because we would have a first customer. It actually was somebody from the same incubator. It was a different okay. company and they were trying something. And our business is helping get customer insights survey with the brain uh, using AI in um, market research. And it was one of the companies who said, look, I would like to understand my own customers. Like, yeah, it's good. You're doing what we are preaching you should be doing. Everybody should be doing that. And so they actually gave us $50 for a quick survey. And we felt so good, $50, it's amazing. And then another company came who also I got to know one employee through one of the startup functions. And they had, a, they had a market research problem and they paid us $800. And now it starts feeling seriously, we are really uh, getting up the journey. If you are providing a service to your client, you should also have a service level agreement in place. This governs the service that you're providing and what are the steps and terms in place if the service does not go to plan. The agreement usually defines the required scope of the product's functionality, time requirements in relation to its maintenance, and expedience of repairing any incidents. It should also divide the responsibility for functionality and maintenance of the digital product between yourself as the provider and your customer. You may also come across SLAs if you are utilizing another tool to provide your service, and then you would actually accept their SLA and it's a service that they provide you. You can find a template to use on our Playbook website linked below if you don't have any SLAs in place yet. But we were here. Now we had a couple of customers who gave us some money and we felt now to really make it work. We're either going to have to work for free for a very long time or we're going to get some funding from somebody else. And so I started looking at a few investors who uh, could give us seed money, who could believe in the concept. 
Now we had a few paying customers who have paid us some money. We had a good concept, smart people on the team. And that's when we raised the first round of seed investment in Slovakia from Neurology. Group Silver have most of their customers in the US. However, they were able to gain investment during their seed round in Slovakia. And that was, that was the kind of when we said, okay, now we have enough money to open, open an office, hire a proper team of developers. Let's go. You know, we felt now it's, it's time to go for real. And I think that's, that's when it really started. We started really building that company as kind of as it is today. Group Solver actually also balanced their existing knowledge to leverage technology expertise in Slovakia and opportunity in the U.S. Most of our customers are in the U.S. And then we have a, a bunch of very good customers who are Western European. So the one advantage we had versus other companies who started in Slovakia is that, you know, in Slovakia, you have a lot of smart people, really cool technologies, and they really struggle to get into the U.S. market. I was working at a top consulting firm before, so I kind of understand the language. I understood what the need is, but it's really difficult in, difficult in the U.S. to to work on a shoestring budget if you're not a coder. I was not really looking for investment at the time. I started opening my eyes and just looking uh, to network. And we just really clicked with Neurology and the timing was right and we just got it done. And I felt it was more important at the time to just get funding and keep growing the company than to dedicate full time of my time, just going, getting on a plane to Silicon Valley and keep pitching the same PowerPoint, improving the story. Because I don't get too much pleasure pitching over and over. I, yeah. I, I prefer building the company. But back to the investor. Group Silver knew it was important to find a suitable investor who really understood their business. Now, what I knew uh, intuitively also that our journey is probably going to be a little bit different than your traditional a SaaS startup, just because our industry is very sticky. Our customers are super conservative and they are B2B. So it takes much longer to build a B2B business and you, know, you cannot uh, rely on viral marketing. So I need to make sure that our investors are okay with that. And they understand that we will have to build those relationships with our customers that will take a long time and there'll be a lot of experimentation. So when I was talking to our investors in Nulogy, I just felt that they really got it. And being former entrepreneur, they, they knew what it would take. I felt that my deficiency as a founder was that I, I know I can run a company. I know I can make very good strategic des- decisions. I'm a, you know, I'm a smart person. I've been around big corporations doing a lot of consulting back at McKinsey. So I knew that once I get to that point, I'll be fine, but I needed help um, getting to that point. And that to me means a support from investors who are going to give me both the advice and of course, keep me accountable for what I do, but also give me the leash that, I, that we need to do what needs to be done, to learn, to build those customer relationships. So, and I didn't have to tell the story to get an investment. That, to me, that was important. A lot of times, once you start getting on the road, and my understanding is that from other founders that I talk to, it's, it's a game. You kind of know what the investor wants, what they want to hear. They, you know what, what's the formula they plug in to evaluate you, you know, what kind of return you can get, the risk. And I mean, I talked to a few investors and I find myself trying to change my story to fit what they wanted to hear. And I didn't feel good about it because I knew that even if I did get an investment and when I started actually using it, investing it, and you know, I didn't want to be in a situation that I have to tell them a different story that I'm telling myself about what the business is. 
And so that was that's different about Group Solver compared to some of the friends I have who are founders. And I think it might mean that a journey will be different and maybe longer and not as explosive as maybe some other startups might be experiencing. But I think it's very sustainable and more predictable. When looking for an investor, it can be tempting to change your story to suit the investor. However, this can be risky for your long-term strategy. But that also then creates expectations that for that investment to get a return, you also have to grow faster. You have to meet that expectation. And I think that that's when a lot of companies get in trouble, that they kind of get ahead of themselves. And then you start taking risks. And what I mean by those risks is making bets on the product, on marketing, right? If you, if you raise money and you have only so much time to use it, you have, you, you, at some point you're going to burn through money and you can either at that point when you're done using that investment, you either at the point where you need to raise more money and you better have built a story of growth so that you can sell another story of growth to the investor. And hopefully it's a true story. You believe it. Or you get to a point you actually are profitable or you are, your economics are such that you have proven to your investors and to yourself that you can you actually are a real business, sustainable business. And I think that the companies do get in trouble when they get into the cycle of keep raising more money and more, more and more. And that, that the cost, the expense, the, the, the economic efficiency part never catches up on that growth part. When we, we uh, are building groups over, we are very conscious of that. And, you know, last time we raised money in three different small rounds of seed investment. And before our last one last year, we were profitable and growing in 2x from previous years. So we felt we have achieved, achieved that sustainability. And I think that gives us the opportunity then to find investors who uh, buy into that story and, you know, keep, keep doing what we're doing sustainable growth. So the company was able to find financial resources, but what about hiring? Scaling can also come with issues around scaling up too fast. We were at 40 or 50 employees two years ago, and then we couldn't sustain. Okay. We just got ourselves in trouble. I mean, so that, that's, that it's a real, really painful experience when you raise money and you go, yeah, let's go, go, go. And you realize you have, you have left that other part of the equation and you haven't solved the problem. The company got smaller, we got more efficient, we fixed things, and now we are growing as a more healthy company. It's been a journey, and it's not been a linear, you know, straight up line like you would like to see, but life is not straight. After going through this process, Rasto advises an order for scaling. Ideally, the team scales kind of along the same time, maybe probably a little bit before the revenue scales up. You certainly don't want to scale up revenue really fast only to realize you cannot fulfill the promise. Every business has to take a calculated risk and hire people in expectation. That team will be needed to continue supporting that, that growth. And for us, our first attempt didn't quite work. The growth looked good, but it stalled. And so we had to kind of readjust. And I think that changes how we, how we hired people. I think it, we are much more thoughtful now than we were two or three years ago about, okay, so what is that person bringing to the team? And can we make a commitment that this is going to be a permanent position for them? It, it's really painful to have to let go of people that uh, you brought in and who were good. Sometimes you just have to tell them, you know, these things are not working out great. We're going to have to do something different. And so we learn from that experience. And now when we are uh, bringing in a person in, we are very thoughtful about their role, what they do. And we are definitely hiring slower. 
we want to have, give enough time for every new person comes in that they have a, besides well-defined role, which, I, which is a must, we have a, they have a mentor. They have somebody who is going to be with them, guiding them, directing them, answering questions. They have, a, they have somebody they can talk to. Particularly important now in COVID where you don't even have an office to, to just kind of find somebody. We have to help you. So, somebody, so we, we are very certain we know how that person is going to integrate in. And they have the resources both from the, 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 the boss then also from the team in the parallel in the same, same level. So they, they fit in. They feel they are supported. We also tend to hire a little bit differently than just for the skill. The skill can be taught. It takes some time, of course, and it's an investment. But what you cannot teach is the mindset. And so we most often we, we hire for the, the spark in the eye the the willingness to learn to and and there's this important quality we look for and that is you know a, being proud in their craft you know when i was playing in a band and we lost a bass guitar player when i was uh, in high school then you learn how to play the bass as mm -hmm. long as you want the band to be, to, to be successful so when hiring, in addition to signing new team members under an employment contract, and actually we have a template for that too on our Playbook website, including for full-time and part-time employees, you should make sure to include a trial period. While the interview process should ensure your new recruits are a culture fit, it is also important that you have a process in the contract to allow you to review their progress and fairly let them go if their performance does not meet expectations. When we are hiring, we are thinking about what does the band need and what kind of personality does it need to be and everything else will fall in place. And we give people time because once you have the mentor and you have the people who are supporting that new person coming in, we'll give you time to develop. So that, that too, that's, what, that's how we hire people. Everybody in the company, once you pass some number of months of being employed, mm -hmm. meaning that the fit is true, not just you know, on paper, every single person gets some sort of share from the revenue. ESOP stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan and is part of the equity that the company will put aside for employees of the company for their long-term efforts. Allocating some of your equity towards ESOP allows for your employees to benefit from the growth of your startup. Possible benefits of this includes increased employee motivation as they benefit from the startup succeeding. And here's that connection with performance of the company. So typically salespeople get commission and you have a developer or a marketing person, they, they might get equity, right? But we also, on top of that, we do the bonus is always tied to the performance of the company. So if you're not getting commission already from this being part of your job, everybody does share in the success. So as the company grows, everybody is going to be benefiting from that as well. So th those are just kind of a financial, aligning financial interest. As an economist, of course, I believe that aligning incentives is ridiculously important. It just pays off to be transparent and give everybody a stake in not just in the financial success of the company, but also in the culture and how we, how we work. And so, so that's, that's how we motivate people. We recognize them. You know? I don't just say, hey, John, good job. You were great today. I don't say, ever say that. I say, you did this. And this was so awesome because it helped Mary do her job. And so that kind of, and, and I'm not the only one who does that. And I think that is, that is building that equity culturally, the band, right? When band plays together, not enough to have the right set of notes for everybody. You still have to listen to what everybody else is doing. Finally, scaling also comes with business challenges such as product market fit. 
one of the big learnings kind of midway through our journey when we had to say, hey, time out, let's rethink it. You know, we were kind of marching the, we have a concept of what we wanted to do, kind of a subscription revenue business, very similar to some of our competitors. And, but, but at the same time, our product was not exactly a straight comparison to those. And so at some point we have to say, okay, wait, wait a minute, what are we going to do? What is really that our customers are willing to pay for? And how do we, how do we get paid for the value we deliver? We learned that no matter what your idea is of how you're going to make money as a business, if you pay attention to what your customers are actually telling you, chances are you're going to have to readjust. And so I think that that to me was a big learning of being open and, and finding the way to still, still make money and still be growing without forcing onto your customer a business model they don't want. We have taught ourselves to be very good listeners. When they come to us, when we, we have a conversation with them, when we, when we try to partner, at the end of the day, there is something that they are, there is at, at, at the core of it is some, some question, some important business question that they need to solve. So they have an open mind about what do we actually do and can we, can we help them? We just connect on a human level. And when you do that, and then when you do a good job with the chance you, you are given the first time, they will come back. And then, you, you know, I would consider some of our customers friends, even though I never met them. It just feels we are together working on a problem that they have. But, you know, what I want us to be, and it would be when we are more successful, we have become a way of doing business for them. We have become ingrained in how you think about solving a problem. That's when you get really stickiness of a new technology of a new new partnership is when somebody thinks about okay how do i understand my customer you immediately think group solver if we consider your business as a car finances and people are the fuel so perhaps culture is the road that they drive on how can you maintain a thriving culture and therefore a well-built road when you scale i can think of quite a few people who were a wrong fit or became a wrong fit in over time. There was this one uh, event I attended when we first started. It was, I think, a part of the Slovak Startup Awards. And they had a, a seminar. And there was some gentleman presenting, founder from some other company. And he was saying there are four types of people that you do not want to hire. One of them was a prima donna, like somebody that you have to change who you are around them. And we have hired a few prima donnas, not knowingly, I recognize it too late, but yeah, it really does hurt the fit. It hurts people around them. The question with transparency and with kind of having the kind of good, equitable, open, collaborative company is the execution. It's all down to execution. For execution, you have to have a team that is watching out for each other. Like I make a ton of mistakes. I I don't know, I don't know how for my... How often I had to apologize to people on Slack or just I screw up and it happens. And you have to have the guts to say when you do and, and then you work on fixing it. It's very much unknown. How do you maintain a culture? We are still guessing because what's working right now with a small company may or may not work when you scale. But I do know one thing is that my job is to monitor this and, and keep adjusting if something doesn't work. Uh, there will be a time that, I mean, if it was not, not COVID right now, it would not be the case, but there will be some time where I will have not met everybody and I would not know their face. And so, th so I already th am thinking, how do I prevent this? And this from being a, creating a culture that is going to be different, that, you know, if the culture cannot be hinging on me being who I am, 
It has to be me modeling the behavior I want to see for my team and then holding them responsible for doing what I think is right. I want to create a space that everybody can, can create their own mark and be comfortable being who they are as long as they adhere to some of these rules which anybody who graduated from kindergarten will recognize. From Rastel's perspective, being genuine goes a long way. And staying focused on who your product is designed to help keeps you focused. Your investment is not what, what determines your future. It's the customer. Everything is about customer. If you can get that right, and then if you can build a culture and, and, and employees who understand that, then good things will happen no matter what the journey is. Whether we raise money or not, never raise money ever again, it is, it's, it's irrelevant. What is relevant is fulfilling the promise you give to customer and make money off of it. This podcast is created by Sparring, the legal and strategic service for tech visionaries.